Welcome to the OA Light It Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions, the opinions expressed on the Light It Candle Podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lucy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lisanne. Um, my name is Lucy. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I... Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you for being here. I know it's incredibly cold right now. Um, okay, we're in California. We're, we're a little bit cold. <laughs> everybody else would be like, ooh, height wave. But um, when I first came into this room, it was probably 2008 or earlier, I came through the back door because I didn't want to see anybody. I didn't want to meet anybody. I sat way back there in the corner behind Roy. I didn't identify as a newcomer, so you guys, Alex, and everybody that identifies, I have so much, like, I don't know the right word, admiration for you, because I just, I just couldn't even do that. So let me just get the numbers out of the way a little bit, because sometimes I forget to talk about it. Um, I first came into OA in 1986. I was going to a life coach, which was very groovy at the time, and he um, sent his wife and I to Overeaters Anonymous. Now I think about it a little weird, but he, anyway, so we went to OA in 1986, and we went to Hill Street, which is a 7.30 a.m. meeting, and I was like, oh my God, this meeting so makes me want to eat. So I was, was like, I am not, this is not for me at all. And I left at 8.30 after the meeting was over, and I went and ate as large a breakfast as I possibly could just to prove that really OA didn't work at all. I wanted nothing to do with it. And then um, in around 2006, uh, a friend of mine uh, in the program, she said, you know, there's this really amazing food therapist. So you can see 20 years have elapsed now. I still have issues with food um, because I'm a compulsive overeater, but I I don't know what to do about them. I'm completely powerless. Anyway, so I go to see this food therapist, and and she is a long-term abstaining member of OA. So she says to me, have you considered going to OA? And I was like, no. And she said, well, you should go. And she did exactly what you should do. She handed me a schedule of meetings because at the time there was like, you know, there was schedules, there was paper, it wasn't internet. She handled me a schedule, and I was like, oh, that's great, you know, I'll go when it's convenient. And anybody who goes to a meeting knows there's, at least my experience, there's nothing about being in a meeting at 5.30 at night in a freezing cold room that's convenient. I mean, there's nothing convenient about going to OA, and I actually think that's kind of part of the point. It was incredibly convenient to sit at home and eat. So I started going to OA, um, but it frightened me because I thought you guys were going to tell me that I couldn't do what I had been doing for years. And I didn't want really to do anything different, so I sort of didn't, got a, didn't get a sponsor. And anyway, anyway, I finally got a sponsor. So I came back in 2008. My abstinence date is January 28, 2008. I've had the same sponsor for now close to 14 years. Um, my absence is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and, and a snack, optional snack. I have been at this height, which is about 5'7". I've been a size 6. I've been a 16. I've been 125. I've been close to 170. Uh, I'm now, um, like in the 150s, I'm a very comfortable size 10. 
I don't feel bad about my body. I'm in better shape at the age of 66 probably than I've ever been in my life, except when I was dancing professionally or um, training. Um, and even in a way better than then. And I don't look in the mirror and tell myself I look fat and that I'm ugly and that there is something deeply wrong with me. And if that was the only thing that OA ever gave me, that would be more than enough. Um, so just to start out with my story, uh, um, my family was the kind of family on a cover of a women's magazine. They wore tennis whites, and they swam, and they surfed, and they were people of white privilege. They looked like everything was perfect. And what I didn't know, because I was like a little girl, I didn't know that there was a lot of alcoholism in my family, and there was a lot of compulsive overeating. And now there's some anorexia, there's some restricting in, in future generations. Um, I, I just didn't know that. I, I, I didn't know. How, how would I know? I just thought it was totally normal that everybody would talk about food and alcohol. I just thought that was just what you did. And um, when I was six years old, uh, my dad volunteered to do some um, humanitarian work in Southeast Asia. So I went from kind of this you know, big white world of privilege and sports and, I don't know, prestige, to living in a bedroom that was regularly robbed. Um, they, they think they probably drugged me to put me sleep through the robbing. There was a very clean toilet, but it was a squat toilet, which you will see in Asia. Um, I was in a school with about a 1,000 students, of which there was probably 12 white students, I was the only white child in my grade of 250 people. Um, I had no friends in the neighborhood. There was no television. There was a very limited phone usage. But what there was was two things. Well, three, really. There was ballet, which I loved, and there were books, so I could just completely lose myself in fantasy, and there was food. And I learned to cook, so I could cook for my dad, you know, because I thought that would make him happy, and... Um, and they had, they didn't, there was no milk, so you couldn't have ice cream. But they had this one kind of uh, ice cream store that had sweetened condensed milk with these sort of these disgusting, um, you know, like fruitcake cherries in it, like the really gross green and red kind. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while we'd get to go there, and it was like such a big deal. But by the time you got halfway through, you were so revolted because it was all this strange, you know, fluorescent colors. Um, and for some reason that I don't fully understand to this day, the other kids in my school stopped speaking to me for at least six months, and I have absolutely no idea why. I don't know if it was because I was white. It, I don't know if it was because I was American. I don't know if it was because I was weird because I didn't speak their language. I don't know. Maybe they just didn't like me. I don't have any. I don't have any idea. But I was so lonely, and I did not tell anyone what was going on because I knew my parents couldn't do anything about it. And my experience with my parents was that, even at a young age, is that they were like super nice people, but they were not there. Like my mother and father, they are the world's greatest people. Like those, these are the people you wanted to party. These are the people you want to talk to. But I just, they would do stuff like leave me at a party and the person giving the party would call back and say, hey, you left something big. Oh, our coat. They're like, no, the baby. And they would just forget. And 
I would get some pretty severe diseases, and they wouldn't take me to the doctor. I'd have to beg them. I'd refuse to go to school. I'd say, if you don't, go to, if you don't take me to the doctor, I'm not going to go to school. I would turn out to have a rheumatic fever, so, which is very serious. So I, that was the way I was living. It was like I was living... The picture didn't match their behavior. This picture on the, in the cruise magazine, or it, it didn't match their behavior. And it was very confusing. And everybody would always say, oh, your parents are so fabulous, and they're so interesting, and oh my God, we love them, and they're so much fun. And I'd be thinking, whoa. Like, obviously there's something wrong with me because I feel totally, like, I don't know even how to explain it, the feeling. It was like, I don't know, it's, I don't find the words, like, hung out to dry. Like, I feel like, what are you talking about? Like, I feel completely isolated. I have to read constantly. Um, I read so much that I was about three years ahead in reading because I had nothing else to do. So literally my dad would teach me to read with Time and Newsweek magazine when I was six years old because I had nothing else to do. And then I would do ballet and then I would start to eat. And then I got back to the United States and I didn't know how to be an American kid. I didn't know how to look cute. I didn't know how to look cool. I didn't know how to talk to girls. I didn't know how to play kickball or foursquare or base. I didn't know the shows anybody was watching. So I just felt completely stupid. I just felt so stupid and kind of dumb, but I could eat. I could eat and I could, I had this little Betty Crocker cookbook, which I still have. And it had like all these cookies in it. And I would just make these Betty Crocker cookies. And I, I learned to cook, and, you know, I would stand. My parents had this old-fashioned bread drawer, the kind that has, like, a metal, you know, like a metal thing that goes over it to keep the bread fresh. And I would stand above it, and I would eat these pink and white animal cookies. And, you know, I would eat the ones that had the most sprinkles, and then the least sprinkles, and then the most frosting, and then the least frosting, and then and then the ones that were white, and then the ones that were pink, and and. And, but I was constantly feeling bad about myself because I was a dancer. So they'd be like, Lucy, you've got to lose weight. I'm like, yeah, okay. But I didn't know I, I didn't know how to stop eating. And my mom, bless her heart, was a compulsive reader. So my mother's idea of a snack was not like an apple. It was like crackers and cheese and cookies. And, and in many ways, we were fed very healthy. We always had, you know, like salads in the 50s and 60s when, like, nobody ate green things, you know. But... My mother's life was food. She was a great cook. She had these amazing recipes that always involved cream cheese and mayonnaise, you know. And she didn't know. She didn't know. And, you know, I have no idea where I got my attitude. You know, it says in the doctor's opinion about that obsession of the mind, I have no idea where I got it. I don't think, actually, it really matters. Like, what would it... What if somebody said to me, well, you know, it was your Uncle George, and it was because, I mean, what difference would it make? I have it. And so, you know, I kept dancing, and um, I went to this really prestigious dance school. And, um, you know, a lot of what my family did was about prestige. It was a lot about going to the right schools. It wasn't about belonging to the right clubs, honestly, because they were political activists, but it was a lot about, like, like getting really good grades and, you know, being a great athlete and just, you know, accomplishing, accomplishing. And it's exhausting, you know, and I I still feel that way. Like, I still bear the, you know, I absorbed it kind of. Anyway, so I became this dancer, and um, there's a really famous production they do every year of Nutcracker, which is around this time of year. Mm-hmm. And um, they said, Lucy, you know, we can't have you be in the show because 
you can't fit in the costumes. Now, I probably, I mean, that makes it sound like I was morbidly obese. I probably was, I don't know, 135, 140 pounds. I wasn't a huge little girl, and I was 5'6". I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was, and I was like, what are you talking about? There's a lot of rats and mice in the Nutcracker. Are you telling me I can't fit in that outfit? And I, again, was devastated because I was a really good dancer. All my girlfriends were in the show except me. And I was left behind with the, the ones that, you know, weren't maybe on the same level as I was. And, and people would come and they go, oh, we see a lot, lot of talent in here, we, but we see some people who are eating too many, what's the word, Napoleons. So, you know, the pastries. So I learned really young that I wasn't going to get picked and that there was something wrong. And I also learned really young that food would fix stuff. And until I met my sponsor, my sponsor said to me, you know, when she, she suggested my abstinence, which was three meals a day and one optional snack, and she said, in life in between, I had absolutely no idea what life in between meant. I, I, I was like, what does she mean by that? It was sort of like somebody said, you're going to have three meals a day, and the rest of the time you're not going to breathe. I mean, I didn't know, like, how do you, li like, I thought about breakfast, and then I thought about lunch, and then I prepared to have lunch, and then I made the lunch, and then I made the snack, and then I made the dinner, and then I planned the next day's food, and I, I, I didn't know how to have a life, you know, without, without thinking about food all the time, and thinking about how much I weighed, and what I was going to do to lose weight. So... I would, you know, back in the day, they didn't have real gyms. They had these gyms where you stood there, and they put a strap around you, and they just wiggled your fat. And you just stood there, and, like, your fat was wiggling, and your thighs were wiggling. They were, like, giant rubber bands. And so you just sat there going like this, like, you know, and that was supposed to do something. And because I was actually restricting when I was 17, they were like, look, it worked. Look at Lucy. Well, yeah, okay, because I was eating cottage cheese and spitting it out. And until I came in here, I didn't realize that spitting was like a thing. I was eating cottage cheese and spitting it out. And then my girlfriend, Lisa, got back from France and said, oh, we're supposed to drink Perrier because it's really healthy. I was like, okay, great. So then I would drink Perrier, which was in the 70s. I, I, I thought it was some sort of weight loss thing. I don't know what I thought. So I'm eating this kind of, and I was eating hard-boiled eggs, and then my mother told me there was this thing called a grapefruit diet, and you had a grapefruit, and the grapefruit was supposed to, like, eat all the other food, like it was a giant fungus or something. And so the, gra the grapefruit was going to eat all the other food, and then I had this really thin, she wasn't a nanny, but it was like somebody who lived in our house, she was a student, and she was like, oh, I used to be overweight, but then I got really thin. And I said, how'd you do it? And she said, well, I didn't eat anything for six days a week. Oh, and then on the seventh day, I would have like three pieces of cheesecake. I was like, oh, that sounds great. The problem was is I couldn't sustain it, you know. So I would have the three pieces of cheesecake, but then I would eat everything else. So there was all this strange eating behavior that I didn't, you know, now I didn't know, you know, that it was weird eating behavior. So... I had this summer, one summer where I restricted because I was in love with this really hot guy who, of course, already had a girlfriend, but I ignored that fact. But So I was in love with this really hot guy, and I restricted, and I lost a lot of weight. Well, by the end of the summer, I was trying to um, be bulimic to get rid of the food because by after three months of this, I couldn't, after three months of spitting, I couldn't, um, I couldn't sustain it any longer. I mean, I was basically putting cheese in my mouth, spitting out the cheese, putting cottage cheese in my mouth, spitting out the cottage cheese. I was smoking a lot, which kind of helps. 
that actually always worked for me as a really good diet, if you don't mind that it kills you, but I was smoking a lot, and I think I was also drinking, which probably suppressed my appetite as well, but anyway, so I was doing all that stuff, um, and all throughout puberty, I would do the strangest things, because I was so embarrassed of my body. I would walk around in my best friend's father's bathrobe. I, I have no idea, because it covered my butt. You know, I, I'm walking around with a bathrobe on. I don't know. I guess I thought I looked hip and groovy, or it looked vintage or something. I, I don't know why. And I would go swimming with a bikini top and a pair of jeans. I mean, a full-on pair of jeans. I mean, who does that? I mean, it just was... You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't show my body. And part of the recovery in OA now is if any of you came over to my house and we were going to go to the beach or something, that would so not be a problem for me. I would not be thinking about myself because the nature of my disease is I think about myself all the time, all the time. And the big book, you know, someday I should actually count how often the big book says self-obsessed and self, you know, looking at self, because I just thought about myself all the time. And part of the reason was, is I was in so much pain, and I had such acute self-loathing. I felt like I was disgusting. And my parents, who in many ways were good parents, they were trying to educate us, they were trying to teach us sports, like they were completely not equipped to deal with somebody who hated themselves. It wouldn't have made any sense to them. And I was in a state of this unbelievable shame, like... If I was standing up here then, it would be totally about holding in my stomach and hoping you didn't see my legs, and maybe you couldn't see my legs behind the podium. And, you know, if I was intimate with a guy, you know, that was a nightmare because, you know, God only knows what they were looking at. I was, it, it was absolutely that if I wasn't thin, you were going to reject me. I wasn't going to get a job. It, it, it was completely binary. Thin is good. I'm bad. And that was it. There was no gray area. None, zero. So, you know, I went on like this, and and I just kept thinking, hoping, you know, someday this is going to change. Someday I'm going to find a diet. You know, I got the blow-up pants you get in the back of, like, comic books or magazines, and you blow these pants up, and they're supposed to make you sweat. I mean, I got, I drank these stupid protein drinks. Of course, I would drink one, then I have a full lunch, because you can't drink one of these. Well, I can't, okay? Let's just put it that way. And there was these strange candies back in the day called AYDS, these little revolting candies you were supposed to eat, and that was supposed to take your appetite away. I mean, none of this worked. So, uh, and years later, you know, there was um, this thing called FenFen, which I think was basically like speed. I'm not sure. And I didn't take FenFen, but I took organic FenFen because that was supposed to be safer. Well, all I did was cry. It was like I was ragingly hormonal. Um, I went to see a nutritionist who was like this big Hollywood nutritionist, and he, you know, he took his calipers and he was pinching all this fat under my arm, which for some reason was really, I don't know, I just felt like it was really, look, he's not trying to be demeaning. He's not doing anything to me. But they're taking all this fat with these pokey things and pinching his, oh, like you're 33% body fat. You know, we've got to do more. Well, you know, he's a nutritionist. I'm completely ignoring everything he says, like completely ignoring. You know, when people say to me, should I go to a nutritionist? I'm like, don't ask me. I ignored everything they said, so I, I can't help you there. I'm sure they work, but... Um, so, that, I mean, that was going on. I was paying so much money to people. You know, somebody said, oh, you got to go to this trainer at Gold's Gym. I'm like, okay, great. Sign up for the trainer. And then he did the same effing thing. He took pictures of me from the back, like half naked, to show how I was going to get rid of the fat on my arms and my butt. 
And then, and I was like sobbing. I was like, I was taking, he was taking these pictures of me, and then it was like 6,000. I mean, it's all this money. You know, I was just giving, it was, you know, it was like, and I've said this, it was like if somebody came up to me on a street corner and goes, look, you know, I really know, you know, I know you want to be thin, but I have the answer. You know, I'd be like, here, I'll write you a check. I, I just, I just thought being thin was the answer. I'll write you a check. So, anyway, so you get the idea of, what the early life was like and, and the kind of torture I was putting myself under. And then as I got older and became a performer, people would say stuff to me like, well, it was pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good audition. You're a little hippie. And, and they wouldn't mean like bohemian. They would mean your butt's big, you know. And Or people would say to me, oh, my God, you would be so pretty if... And you effing knew what was coming next. You totally knew. Or... You have such an interesting face. Like, okay, except I have a body too. And my way of coping was to completely ignore my body. Just like ignore it, like just be this walking head, be as smart as I as I could be. And I would go through all these bizarre periods where I would try to be perfect and then I'd, you know, get straight A's and then I'd fail out of school because I was thinking, well, that didn't make me feel better, so I'll just like do drugs and drink and sleep with guys and you know then I'd fail then I'd come back and you know I was just trying everything I could think of to quote unquote be happy quote unquote be content so finally I I go see this food therapist I mentioned earlier and um, she says go to the OA meeting and you know I get a sponsor and um, and all the while you know I'm doing all these diets and I'm doing all this therapy and my whole goal in life was figure out what is wrong with me. I, I was convinced that everybody else had the answer and there was something deeply, deeply wrong with me. And I would have moments where I would feel okay and then I'd be like, oh my God. Like, I'm kind of surprised in a way that I wasn't suicidal when I think about it because I was, I just kept thinking if I could just get the right diet, you know, if I, somebody just give me the right therapy, you know, then I would be okay, I'd be okay, I'd be okay. Because I just felt like there were whatever there was something wrong with me and it wasn't helped by the fact that in a way my parents were so unbelievably popular and I was like I just feel like I've been totally neglected and you know and there was a lot of stuff in my background why that would be I mean my dad's idea of you know how to get us across cross country it was when I was 14 he put us on a bus and said okay you're in Washington you see get on San Francisco and we had nobody with us you know I was constantly being left alone in really dangerous circumstances in the Middle East I mean all kinds of places or my father would forget that we had gone fishing together and he'd leave me in a laundromat and drive away actually that time wasn't fishing I think we're driving across country and so I I had like there was a lot of neglect and I I didn't know what to do about it and so anyway so she suggested I come to OA so I started coming to OA and I I got a sponsor and the sponsor said to me you know I don't go to how many meetings a week do you go to I said I go to two and she was like okay that's enough I was like, okay. And then she said, we'll do the steps together. I was like, okay, cool. And I was going to Paris, and um, it never occurred to me to go to a meeting in Paris. It never occurred to me to take any of the literature with me. It did not occur to me to, uh, to do any of the things that I would do now, to text a fellow, to have a podcast. I don't know if we even knew about podcasts, and it was 2006 or 2008, to have a podcast on my phone, to bring the literature with me, to, there's really good meetings in Paris, 
really good. And so I go to Paris, and I've planned the whole meal. I've told my friends exactly what I want. I want this, and we're going to have oysters, we're going to have this, and we're going to have this, we're going to have this, and we're going to have this whole fancy dinner. And I went to Paris, and I got there, and we had this whole fancy dinner. But, of course, that wasn't enough. Because what I'm asking food to do is make me feel okay about myself. And that's why my particular relationship with food is cuckoo. I am, like, food for me is mother, father, lover, best friend, Academy Award. It's everything at once. And I'm, I'm in a primary relationship with an object that is never going to give me what I want. And that's what the doctor's opinion says. Not only does the salt and the sugar and all that set up a craving for me, but it sets up the mental obsession. When will I get more? And when will it work? It worked once when I had a coffee and two chocolates. When will it work again? When will it work? Well, I'll feel like the world's a great place and it's easy. It's okay to be me. So I go back to my hotel room and they have a little mini fridge with stuff in it. And I open a mini fridge in Paris and I start eating these, these um, cheese biscuits. Now, this is interesting to me. Even having a little bit of program works, just a little bit, because even though I really kind of wasn't working the steps and I wasn't calling my sponsor and I was only going to two meetings a week, and anybody listening to this podcast, if you're only going to two meetings a week or if that's all you can make it to, this is no judgment. I'm just talking about what worked for me. This is just me, not anybody else. So... I, st- I woke up the next morning. I thought, oh, my God, I, I binged. I broke my abstinence, you know, because I'd gotten to 30 days and broken 60, broken 90, broken six months, broken. So I broke my abstinence, and I'm literally crawling around the floor in this hotel room counting how many cheese biscuits are left in a wastebasket. So the rest of the time I'm spending in Paris, and I'm like, what's wrong with me? This is like the most beautiful place on earth. Then I went to London. This is so pretty. It's Christmas, it's beautiful, it's new. like I am so unhappy. Well, what I didn't realize at the time, and now I know, is that I was restless, irritable, and discontented. I had enough program in me, and the food was starting not to work. It was starting not to be okay just to go to these fancy restaurants. Or I didn't even care about fancy restaurants. If somebody said, hey, the best, I don't know, make it up, barbecue is somewhere, I would drive to like the worst neighborhood in town to get the bar- best barbecue. I just wanted the best whatever. But that, that was starting not to work for me, and I didn't know. I was like, why am I nasty to my, being nasty to my friends, and why am I doing all this? And, you know, and, and I'm shopping for jewelry, and that's not fun, and, like, nothing's fun. Like, I went to Cirque du Soleil, and I didn't like I – mean, who doesn't love Cirque du Soleil? It's a circus. It's great. You know, it just wasn't fun. So, you know, I um, came back here, and um, – my dog was dying, and uh, I went to the vet, and the vet said, we don't know if your dog will make it, and I called my sponsor, and she said, well, you haven't called me, so I've moved on, and that was absolutely the best thing that's ever happened to me. That was the best thing. That was a great example of rejection as God's protection. That was, it was absolutely what was meant to happen, and I called somebody who knew Leslie, my sponsor, and they called somebody who knew her. Somebody called somebody who knew Leslie, it's like one of those God shots. I called Leslie. Unbelievably enough, she was home before a meeting, and she called and she said, meet me at this meeting, light a candle. And she said, where do you sit? I didn't even know what she meant. I sat in the back so nobody would see me. She had me do a little bit of writing. She gave me my abstinence, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and an optional snack. She said, go to five minutes meetings a week and have five commitments. I did not know what a commitment was. 
I, I didn't know what a commitment was. I knew some people sold you literature. I didn't know what that was. I just said yes, because by that time, I was so out of answers. I was in so much pain. I had done everything. I mean, if she'd said gone to seven meetings a week, I would have said yes. And I started to work the program like that. And she said, you know, be on meetings early, be on time. I was never on time, never on time. So I started being on time. I remember I left a meeting early once because I had a new puppy. She was like, never do that again. I'm like, okay, got it. And I was scared of her, so I did what she told me. And, um, okay, so then I started going to meetings. Um, I got abstinent, like I said, January 28th. I think Leslie started being my sponsor maybe the 25th or so. Um, she said, call me every day at 6.30. I did not tell her I woke up at 9. So I called her every day at 6.30. I was not even remotely awake at 6.30. I started going to these early morning meetings. I went to Hill Street three times a week at 7.30 a.m. I don't know what made me willing. I mean, it must have just been I was so desperate. I was just so... I woke up at 9. I was in the car by 7 a.m. now. It was crazy. you know. And I started getting these commitments... Getting a commitment at a meeting and going to regular meetings, I think, is absolutely crucial because you really get to know people. And it's just like, you know, um, Michelle and I were setting out the literature tonight. We're like, whoa, look at all this. This literature is great. I haven't even looked at it. I haven't even looked at these workbooks. I don't work out of a workbook. I did my steps um, out of the Alcoholics Anonymous, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. And we're like, wow, the workbooks, the literature here is so great. And I started to get to know people instead of judging them. And, you know, I was told, look for the similarities. Don't look for the differences. I started looking for similarities. I grew up in very strict religious schools. So I, and so I had kind of the idea of the punishing God who hated you and particularly hated me because I wasn't perfect and I was always screwing up, I felt. So I started getting a better concept of a higher power. You know, and what I do in the morning is I come down, I pat my dogs because it's unconditional love, and I make sure I pay attention to them that's part of my higher power is that love. I start reading some of the literature in, in um, OA and in other programs as well. Since I've come in here, I've gone into two other programs too. I start reading some of the literature. I do a gratitude list. I get, I write down two things that I want to be today, like kind, patient, because um, I'm not patient. And um, I write down my purpose, and I write down, like, one thing I really have to get done, like make it up, make a bank deposit or, you know. I have become a better daughter in this program. My mother died five years ago. I did not eat through her death. My brother died last year during COVID very slowly. My brother, I was absolutely devoted to him. I did not eat during his death. I showed up for him. I was a good sister. I, he didn't want to be touched or held or told you know, any of that while he was dying. I helped him by giving him exactly what he wanted. That was, that's 100% this program. I'm a better wife. Um, my sponsor will be happy to tell you how many times she's, or maybe not, but how many times she said to me, clean up your own side of the street, focus on yourself. I want. I was like, my husband's an ass. I'm getting rid of him. He's just, this is not good. And um, she was like, look at yourself. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I kept my mouth shut. You know, she just counseled me to keep my mouth shut regarding a family business. And sure enough, I got the email that I was waiting for today. So I've learned to keep my mouth shut. I've learned to find a higher power, a higher power that's loving, that I see in nature, that I look up and I see, wow, it's really beautiful. I walked to the chiropractor day looking up going, wow, it's, it's really beautiful. I've learned to act as if. Don't want to come to meetings? Come to a meeting anyway. It makes you feel better. I've learned, you know, if I start smiling, even though I hate everybody, 
it, it works. This morning, um, through another work program, I was working in the jails, and today was one of the awkward times. You know, it was one of the times where I felt like, uh, didn't really go as well as I wanted to. And you know what? It's not about me. It really is not. It's never about me anymore. Um, of course, it is a lot about me, but I have to constantly think of how I can be of service, how I can be of love and service. And the amazing transformation for me is I don't hate myself anymore. I don't think I'm perfect. Sometimes I get upset. Sometimes I get irritable. Um, but I don't hate myself. I don't think I'm fat. I don't look in the mirror and go, oh, my God, I'm disgusting. Um, and thank you so much. And... Um, I think for my age, I am totally content. I am completely content with where I am. And OA has given me, and I did not come in for this. I really didn't. OA has given me so much connection. You know, my way of connecting with somebody before was, you know, I ate the shrimp off their plate. You know, OA has given me so much connection with people that is really deeply meaningful. I got a text the other day from a guy I'd done a minor favor for, for his mom, at like 10 or 10 years ago maybe, and it was a picture of his 99-year-old mom dancing, and he wrote to me, I never forgot what you did, and I was like, oh my God, there's the program. I totally forgot what I did, and there's this 99-year-old mother, you know, she's like dancing, she used to be a dancer, and those really sweet, tender, kind moments, there are so many in here, and throughout all the bad stuff that happens in life, not to me, but to everybody, people in here have been really, really kind. And they've, and they've made me feel good, and they've reached out to me, and they've taken care of me, and they've hugged me when I was like too afraid to ask for help. So there is no way that I could ever repay OA for what it's done for me, ever, in every aspect of my life. And so if you're new... There's hope here. Whatever whatever your aspect of the disease is, there is absolutely hope here. I did not come in thinking that, and there is a lot of hope here. So thank you very much, and I look forward to hearing from you guys. Lisa Ann. Thank you so much, Lucy. That was amazing. Um, can you share with us how you sponsor people in this program? The question is, how do I sponsor people in the program? Um, I try to sponsor exactly like my sponsor does, but I'm not my sponsor, so it's not really possible because she has a different personality and a, and a different um, you know, way of working. But So I work primarily out of the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, and there's, of course there's exceptions to that. If somebody has already done that way and they want to do it out of the Overeaters Anonymous 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, I, I will do that because that's such a good book. Um, I've had people ask me to do the workbook. I'm like, fine. Like, whatever works for you. The only way not to, you know, um, I think the only bad way to do the steps is not to do them. I do have with newcomers and new people, I do have them call me every day. People who have been with me a while maybe call me three times a week. Um, I work the steps. I don't keep making them do the steps over and over again because I feel like they'll do that with their sponsees. Um, I did an eighth step with somebody today. I'm trying to think of what else I have them do. Uh, I'm really firm. I think a morning ritual is super important, like super important. Gratitude list, read something, and a meditation. 
you know, even if they only can do one minute meditation, I, I really feel strongly about that. I now do a longer meditation, but I started with one minute. Um, and I, if they need outside help, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff I can't answer. You know, if your kid has, I don't know, Crohn's disease, I can't help you. You got to take the kid to a doctor. So, you know, I'll sometimes say, I, you know, just I can't help here. I, I don't know anything about this. You know, you need to seek. Or, you know, if somebody has an issue with kids, I'll be like, I, I'm not a mom. I have a stepdaughter, but I'm not a biological mom. I mean, I can, I can have you call somebody else. So, and oh, another thing that I've really learned from my sponsor is. I do baby meetings with everybody, and I do baby meetings on Zoom, too. I do it in person, either outside or with doors open or on Zoom, because I think it's, my sponsor does this, I think it's really, really good to get my sponsees together to build a network so they can rely on each other, because my sponsor's not always around. She works. She has a life. You know, in this way, I know that I can call you. I, I have somebody I can call on. I think that, that that was really good during COVID, too, because we were on every week together, and that helped me a lot. And, um, and I also think there's, there's no substitute for live meetings. It's really great. So I hope that answered it kind of. Oh, all right. Thank you for your talk. You know, um, over the years I've observed you, and I always wondered, is... is you know, looking good, smelling good, is that a part of your recovery? Like having the having the bedazzled on and you know, dressing nice, is that or is that just your personality? <laughs> okay, I'm gonna repeat the question. <laughs> All right. O'Ray is asking if looking good and smelling good is part of my program or is it just part of my personality? And I think it's both. Um I'm speaking tonight, so I put a lot of effort into what I'm wearing. Um, I will often put effort into the Saturday night meeting because it kind of seems like, whoa, it's Saturday night. I might as well look good. You know, the morning meetings I used to go to in basically sweatpants and workout clothes. Um, it makes me feel better, O'Ray, to speak when I'm looking good. And I also feel like it's a program of attraction, not promotion. So, you know, I wear a short skirt. I, I you know, I don't wear pants. I wear skirts. I, it makes me feel better. It, it, it makes me feel better. So I guess the answer is both. And I'm pretty interested in fashion, so it's both. But there are many, many meetings I've been to in sweatpants. And, and on Zoom, you know, you can get away with murder. So I just wear really, really great glasses and bright red lipstick. And then I look like I've been dressed for hours. So, But thank you for your question, Elray. No one has ever asked me that before. <laughs> Francesca. Thank you so much, Lucy. Wow, what an inspiration. Um, you mentioned that your uh, true program, you've become a better wife, and you you keep your mouth shut more. Um, can you speak a little bit more about keeping your mouth shut and when <laughs> <laughs> to a fellow wife? Um, yeah, just talk a little bit more, whatever you have to share about that. Okay, the question is, I talked about just keeping my mouth shut as a wife and I've become a better wife. Um, this is kind of a joke because, like, keeping my mouth shut is not my forte. Um, I have never, never almost found it a mistake to keep my mouth shut. Opening my mouth has caused me problems. Plus, my husband's a professional negotiator. Arguing with him is useless, absolutely useless. And this is what I also find, that I'm starting to lose my taste and my passion for being right. You know, 
I loved being right. You know, one of my girlfriends says, like, I'm on Jeopardy all the time. It's like, I know the right answer. Yeah, capital Sudan. Woo-hoo. You know, I mean, it's like crazy. You know, and I can't be connected to my husband if I keep trying to be right and win the argument. It's not loving. It's really actually painful. And now that I've gotten older, I'm like, am I going to be fighting with him when I'm in my seven? And like, I mean, God forbid it won't happen. You know, he's 71 years old. Like, Something could happen to him, and I'm going to go, oh, thank God we had the fight and I won. I don't think so. You know, so I think part of it is is I'm craving that connection more, and I do think that's a result of working the steps in the program. And it's really hard because, you know, when you have kids, and, and there's, I had my um, stepdaughter over today with her kids, and, man, when you have two toddlers and they're running around, it's frigging havoc, you know, and it's, I found myself getting kind of testy with him, and I had to pause for me, pausing is the singular, uh, one of the absolute most important aspects of the program is pausing. Because I'm super speedy, and then I do stuff like drink coffee, which makes me speedier, or I overschedule, which makes me speedier still, because I kind of like being speedy. And then it's a nightmare. So today I just started slowing myself down, and and... You know, and I say to myself the same, same thing I say about food. Maybe not now I'll mention it, maybe later. Maybe not now I'll eat it, maybe later. And sometimes I just say, yeah, I understand, that's hard. Because I got exhausted. I get exhausted from the fighting, you know. Was, and that was a slow process. There's this saying, I read it in an Al-Anon book, I think once, that, you know, the stone cutter hits the stone and the hundredth time it breaks. It's not the hundredth time that broke it. It's the 99 before. So it's really, I've made 99 mistakes and tried 99 times. And the hundredth time, I kept my mouth shut and I paused, maybe for one extra second. And that's helpful with my food, too, because I eat like, you know, there's, you know, burglars coming to get me and I'm never eating again. And I have to put my fork down and breathe. Otherwise, I'm just eating too fast. So I hope that helps. And I... Love to talk to you about it more because I've had to work that really hard about having patience with my husband. There's one minute more if anybody has a question. Oh, sorry. Thank you for your lead. Uh, you mentioned having that feeling of shame, you know, about yourself that drove the eating. Yes. How did that? Uh, how did that change in recovery? Uh, the feeling of shame drove my eating. Yes, it did. It changed through working the steps. I think the fourth step was crucial, giving away the fifth step, and sharing my shame in meetings and having somebody go, God, I did the same thing. I was like, oh, my God, I'm not terminally unique. I'm not terminally effed up. So sharing about it, writing about it. But I think, again, it's that example of the stone cutter. Like, I shared it 99 times, and the 100th time, I was like, oh, okay, I'm cool. It, it's just... it. One of the keys to this program, I think, and in my experience only, and again, this is my experience only, is repetition and consistency. And if you just keep coming to meetings, you know, there's lots of Zoom meetings, you go to a couple, and you just keep listening to other people. And they, they, I would listen to other people who felt a lot of shame. I'd be like, great. You know, and, and then I would understand that, that it's a disease of shame, and I can, I can move through that. So thank you. Thanks, everybody.